All righty, friends. Uh, I almost didn't even make it this week, to be honest. That's, that's not really true. I'll always make it in some way, shape, or form. That is uh, the pledge, the promise. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, as you guys know, I, I recently just... Uh, well, you're going to find out. You're going to get the whole update today because, uh, you know, I did have trouble getting a guest for this week. I had like three guests, actually, but because of my schedule, you know, we just moved my family to Florida. We're just in the process of getting a house. Uh, things are just com- couldn't be more insane. Uh, so between that and, uh, you know, trying to coordinate with my guests, it just didn't work out. But I actually thought this is a pretty good opportunity to give you guys a little bit of an update on, uh, you know, a little bit of a life up- update on how and why I got to exactly where I am right now, which is in the free state of Florida. And, uh, you know, before I do that, I want to give you a little bit more of the background. And uh, instead of just telling it to you, I've told this before. So I figured I would just share this interview with you um, that I did with my friend, Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show. We did this interview back in November or December of last year, I believe. So it's a little, it's not quite up to date, which is why I'll update you at the end, but it does really get into a lot of my story as far as the immigration stuff I've been going through uh, with my family. Of course, my wife is from Mexico, as you'll hear about in the interview and everything we've had to go through to get to this point. And then after that, I will come back, update you a little bit and tell you about some things I've got going on. And that will be today's episode. So without further ado, here is my friend, Mikkel Thorup, introducing yours truly. Please welcome to the show, Mark Clare. Mark, how are you? Mikkel, man, it's great to be here. A little weird to be here as a formal guest since I've uh, known you so long and, you know, we've having so many informal conversations. So... Exactly. We must have been, oh, geez, on the phone about a million times. And so now to actually be recording it and from this side where I get to ask the questions and I get to put you on the spot for everything like that. So in traditional expat money show format, what's your backstory? Tell me, how did you get into libertarianism? How did you get into podcasting? We'll save a lot of the expat things for maybe afterwards, but I'm kind of curious from the podcasting and libertarian side. Sure. And there's like a two minute version, a three hour version. So I'll I'll try to get somewhere closer to the two minute version on this one. But I mean, essentially, it started for me with discovering Ron Paul, but I actually discovered Ron Paul before most people. You know, most people came to know who Ron Paul was through his 2007, 2008 electoral campaigns for president. And I actually first became familiar with him, not to age myself too much, but about a decade or so before that, I guess, and when I was in college. And a friend of mine in college, his name was Howie, and is Howie, he's still still with us. (laughs) When he was in high school, he was actually a congressional page. It's basically an intern for, for congressmen. So he was a page for some Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania that I've never heard of. But he used to tell me these stories that we were good friends in college. We used to like, you know, stay up late at night drinking. He would tell me stories about this congressman, this guy named Ron Paul, who was this like Republican from Texas. And he would just go on these rants about this guy and how awesome he was and how he would go out of his way to go see his congressional floor speeches. And I was just thinking like, this is so weird. This guy is so obsessed with this congressman, but whatever, I'll I'll check out, I'll check out what he's doing. So I, I started to read his column at the time, which was called Texas Straight Talk. And what really stood out to me, you know, I, I grew up uh, kind of listening to talk radio in the car with my dad because it's basically I, he either listened to doo-wop or AM, like political talk radio. So I, I got to hear this stuff all the time. And the impression that I got from politics was that there was Republicans and Democrats and they argued with each other and they were on the same teams and they only went after each other. But when I started reading Ron Paul, uh, what start, stood out to me was that because Republicans were mostly in power, this is around the, the George Bush era, he was almost exclusively going after Republicans. You know, he was going after the war on drugs. He was going after the war on terror, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, all of these policies that were associated with the Republican Party. And before I even understood, you know, 
his base philosophy or, or anything like that. It just struck me as so different that, oh, there is another way to view politics. There is another way to discuss this stuff, even if it's not that popular. You can actually just have principles and talk about everything through those principles and not care what team it's about. That's just the first time I just started thinking about politics a little bit differently. I didn't necessarily become a, an overnight libertarian, but you know, his style really rung true to me. And more so than even the philosophy that he was talking about, uh, which I did find myself agreeing with, it was more just his tenacity and his truthfulness and his stoicism that he was going to come out there and say whatever he felt was right, regardless of who it was going to upset, regardless of if it wasn't going to get him on a certain committee or what have you. And that really did impress me. So that, that kind of has always inspired me to really, in, in any way I look, talk about politics, I always use Ron Paul as sort of an inspiration of just the, the way he speaks about the ideas uh, and the way that he, he doesn't waver from what he believes. He doesn't back down. You know, when he was in the debates in, in 2008, he was literally being made fun of on stage by you know, supposedly professional, unbiased moderators. And they would literally mock him and laugh at him. And instead of backing down, instead of being meek about it, he actually would just double down. You know, when Rudy Giuliani asked him to apologize for even suggesting that uh, the United States actions overseas could result in blowback and result in terrorism, he didn't just say, oh, no, I'm very sorry. I, I, I misspoke there, as many politicians would. He actually doubled down and said, no, this is obviously what is happening. Uh, the CIA admits this. And, you know, just continued to give his, his lectures and sort of his, his grandfatherly way. And it, it always just stood out to me that, yeah, especially at that time, like I, I thought to myself, you know, if, if this guy can get up there on stage and be practically embarrassed and still just stand up for what he believes and be so bold in his messaging, well, maybe the least I can do is start talking about this stuff in my real life. Because at that point, I kind of, I was I had an interest in politics and in, in terms of the philosophy. I started reading all, all the libertarian books you're supposed to read, Murray Rothbard, Hayek, Mises all that great stuff. But it was just like a hobby to me. It was just like something, an interest of mine. It wasn't something that had any effect on the real world. I didn't think any of these things were really going to happen. And uh, it was really Ron Paul and his tenacity, his boldness that made me at least start talking about it with other people. So I started to talk about this stuff more with family and friends. And a couple of those friends are friends of mine from college, John Odermatt, Brian McWilliams being being two of the main ones there. And the short version of the, re of the next few years is we ended up kind of developing an interest in these ideas together. We started a website, Lions of Liberty, because we all went to Penn State. Their mascot is the Nittany Lions. So that's where the Lions comes from. And it really just started off as kind of like a, a Ron Paul propaganda site, to be honest. We were just kind of writing articles about the campaign and things that were going on and our own commentary. But as that political end of things started to wind down, we started started channeling that into more discussions about philosophy and, and that sort of thing. And at some point along the way, I, I had started listening to podcasts a lot, whether, whether I was you know working out, walking my dogs, doing some menial tasks, I was just consuming podcasts nonstop. And, and this might sound crazy to you, Mikhail, in 2021, but I really couldn't find libertarian podcasts. Like there were a couple, there were a couple of guys like Robert Wenzel and Lou Rockwell who were doing interviews occasionally. And some of that was influential on me just, you know, just to hear any interviews with libertarians that didn't even exist other than with those guys, as far as I knew. And there was like the Cato podcasts that were just kind of like more dry policy type stuff. Nothing that really interested me and nothing that was consistent. I think that's the important thing. And it's one of the important things about podcasts, as, as we've discussed many times, is that consistency. And there's, there was just no consistent libertarian interview podcast out there. So I just decided, okay, I guess I'll start it. And I talked to some friends who had another you know, non-political podcast and I basically just copied their entire setup. But I think we all struggle with this, but I had major imposter syndrome when it came to starting my podcast. So I kept thinking to myself, like, 
I've never done this before. I've never talked on a microphone before. I've never done public speaking. Like I've never done, this is very uncomfortable for me. I just felt it was something I should do. So I, I did put it off for a long time. Like I had the microphone just sitting in a box for a few months, but I was still writing articles for the website. So I started, I was looking to write an article about intellectual property and you know, the, the guru of, of intellectual property in the libertarian world is a guy named Stefan Kinsella. So I dropped him an email, asked him a couple questions and he responded like, you know, this would be a lot easier if we just hopped on a Skype call and then just talked about it. I was like, okay, video call, recording equipment, microphone. I have all these things. It's kind of, there's kind of no excuse not to just start this podcast right now with this interview. So I just said, would you mind if I make this the first episode of my podcast? I've never done this before. And he was like, sure, whatever. So that's what we did. We recorded that podcast and thus the Lions of Liberty podcast was formed. And uh, I guess the rest is sort of history. Eventually, you know, John and Brian, they had been, you know, big parts of forming the website and they, I kind of nudged them a little bit, but uh, I think they were probably going to do it eventually anyway to uh, start their own podcast. And now we have basically three shows on what is not formally called Alliance of Liberty Network, uh, th- that's actually changing next year. We are actually going to for- formally sort of rebrand our show as an actual network, as opposed to just like a podcast that has three different shows, which will, you know, it's going to give us a little more flexibility with some things. So that's pretty exciting. Well, how was episode one? I'm kind of curious on the breakdown of what that was like. Maybe I should go back and listen. Is episode one still up there on the internet or do we have to use like Wayback Machine to find it? No, I, I'm a believer in just leaving everything up. Uh, I was definitely rough around the edges. My audio sucked. I edited it myself. So it's just a disaster because I had never done that before either. <laughs> and yeah, it's not very good. Well, I don't know. Other people say it's good. I'm very hard on myself. So, so hearing it now is super cringe for me, but it's up there. You can go find it. It's, you know, if you just go find Lions Liberty on your podcatcher and scroll all the way to the beginning, you will find episode one. Oh my God. That'd be a lot of scrolling. How many episodes have you done? <laughs> it now? would be, there's probably an easier way to get there than by scrolling. Yeah. Well, I've, I've done as of this recording, 543 episodes of my own. And then John and Brian are each clocking around a couple hundred each. I think John, I think John actually just passed 300 and Brian is in the 200s somewhere. So over a thousand between the three of us. And just for everybody who's listening, that is monumental. That is it. And insane amount of episodes. Unless you're someone like Tom Woods who does, what, five days a week or something like that. Yeah, he just passed 2,000. Yeah, funny story about Tom Woods, though, because actually when I started my podcast, you know, because I was the only libertarian podcast out there, I was like, great, I'm going to be the one, the one who's there every week with the interviews. Like, you know, maybe I won't be the best, but I will be the best because I'll be the only one. And then uh, next day, I think I see an ad on Facebook for uh, coming in October, the Tom Woods show, five days a week. (laughs) I'm like, okay, so maybe I won't be the only one. And maybe this uh, guy who people already know because I was nobody. No one's ever heard of me. But everybody in the libertarian world had heard of Tom Woods at this point. So obviously he had a bit of a leg up on me. And you know, Tom's awesome. He's actually someone I look up to quite a bit in this Liberty Podcast world. So even though I technically started a month earlier than him, he has certainly been an inspiration, especially I mean, you know how hard it can be to turn out an episode a week sometimes. So the fact that he has done five a week consistently is just it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, no doubt. A weekly show is a ridiculous amount of work. Just like yeah. Like it is so much work and the consistency. I've had a couple of times where I've had to take breaks for a few months because of other big projects I've taken on. Now I've committed for the last, I don't know what, year and a half, year, two years to doing no matter what, come hell or high water, I am getting an episode out. And I have had people cancel on me at the last possible second and still somehow juggled and found a way to get these episodes out there. But the fact that you've been doing it for eight years with over 500 episodes, I am in complete awe. I think that's amazing. So after all of these hundreds and hundreds of episodes and interviewing the most influential people in the libertarian space, do you still call yourself a libertarian? (laughs) 
you're going right for the jugular on this one, man. <laughs> like people just use words as, as they use them. So if someone's going to call me libertarian podcaster, Mark Claire, I'm not going to just stop them and go on a rant and say like, no, I don't use that word. It's just, I, I think something that I've discovered in the past couple of years really is that that just labels in general are really hindering to a lot of conversations. So, you know, if we're talking about libertarian ethics, the non-aggression principle, Austrian economics, I agree with all of that stuff. I don't really f- find flaws in it ethically. I don't think it wholly describes everything we need to do in life or anything like that. I don't think it can be like your sole guide to what you do, but I certainly gr- agree with it as a political philosophy. But I, I think that the labels just do hinder conversation because everybody has their own idea of what a libertarian is. My idea of what a libertarian is, is different than hundred other libertarians ideas, let alone what the people that aren't libertarians or aren't anywhere in this realm think they mostly just have like stereotype ideas. So, you know, I'm not going to reject it from libertarians because I know what they're saying. I know they're not saying it derogatorily. I just don't go around holding, you know, waving a libertarian flag. So, you know, I'm for liberty. I'm for individual liberty. I'm for group liberty. I'm for people being able to pursue the greatest liberty in their own lives, whatever that may, that might mean to them. So, if that makes me a libertarian, I'm a libertarian. If that makes me something else to you, then that's fine too. I don't really care. Well, from my side, I think it's really interesting because I would consider myself very libertarian in my values and my moral compass. I would consider myself very libertarian in my political philosophy and my economics and everything like this. And I would probably even come out and say that I'm a hardcore libertarian with a small L because I don't know anything about the libertarian party. Probably for the best. Yeah, probably for the best. I have certainly read my share of libertarian books, but I don't obsessively read every single libertarian book that has ever published in human history. And I'm sure there's... I mean, you were acting it out before it was even a philosophy to you. And I think that's interesting about your story is that, you know, you discovered it because you were already living that way and then kind of found out there was a word people use for it. Exactly. Exactly. But more than that, I think that it's important to understand that this is a show that is based on freedom and liberty. So with all of the guests, all the people that have come on, there's this underlying theme of freedom without having to say, this is the expat money libertarian show. I think that just trying to encompass those same type of liberty values on a daily basis, I think is the important thing. But I guess it's really interesting for me because you have branded yours as a libertarian podcast. So the journey for you is probably quite different than it is for me. But after seeing so much and you're seeing how the Libertarian Party just cannibalizes each other, they're they're monsters. Some of them, I swear to God, I just don't understand how that they would describe themselves in the same way that I think of describing myself. I'm just curious if it's like soured you at all. I mean, as far as the party goes, I mean... My interest in the party was only ever from like a media coverage standpoint. I had people that reach out to me that were like, hey, I'm running for this or that. I I really had never any interest in it prior to like 2015, 2016. And then I started to get to know people in the party and get to know them and like a lot of them. And I think that the difference to me, like the way I look at the Libertarian Party now, as opposed to in probably 2016 to 2018, I was going to like Libertarian conventions, hanging out with a lot of people in the party, hitting Bourbon Street with them afterwards and had a blast. And like, I think there's a lot of good people in the party. So I don't I don't want to like, you know, bash the people necessarily some of them deserve bashing a lot some of them, them actually, do but not the ones some of them do i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name names by any means sure but. plenty plenty do but I, I came to see it as like okay i don't think this is a party that's going to affect anything a because we for better better or worse the united states is a two-party system is structurally and how it is set up and how it's and how it power works and just the way it is, there's not a libertarian party is not going to have a grand impact in any way. There's only been one libertarian congressman, and he was elected as a Republican and switched right before he knew he was going to get taken out of office. 
as far as like political metrics, yeah, it's it's nothing. But at the time, that didn't matter to me too much because to me, it was just more of a way to network with like-minded people. You know, I was, yeah, there's a political aspect to it, but I didn't care about that. So, you know, just a way to network with people. And I, I saw it more as just an aspect of the hobby of being a libertarian. But I think over the last couple of years, I, I look at things a lot differently. I look at politics a lot differently. And it, it seems, to be frank, and I, I've talked about this on Libertarian Podcast before, so it seems a little silly to me to, in 2021, if you're trying to do something serious, considering the events of the last two years, considering we have, you know, vaccine mandates and all these COVID restrictions, and it's only getting pushed further and further and further, I, it's hard for me to say you should look at politics as just a hobby at that point. I would say either you got to change your situation, perhaps including fleeing the country and moving somewhere else, or just making yourself more independent in some way. You should be doing that. Or if you're going to do politics, do real politics. Get your hands dirty and do politics that's going to actually affect and change something. That's just my view. If other people feel more comfortable in the Mises Caucus and in the Libertarian Party and that kind of activism and it works for them in some way, fine, go for it. But I, I do see a lot of people who are heavily invested in the, the political aspect of things, see it as like their last bastion of hope. And meanwhile, some of those people say, well, I can't pay rent next week, or I have to, to comply with a vaccine mandate. Well, then uh, those people, I will say you are prioritizing your time wrong then, because if you can't feed your family for the next six months, if you lose your job tomorrow, then you shouldn't be involved in politics. You, you might, you probably shouldn't be involved in politics, even if you can do that. But if you can't, you definitely shouldn't, as far as I'm concerned, because besides just the fact that it's a bad use of your time, who wants to follow someone who isn't leading their themselves, who wants to follow someone who can't lead their own lives and lead their own family. Absolutely no one. And I think there's a lot of people in that situation that might want to reassess the world around them and say, like, maybe I don't need to spend 10 or 20 hours a week in this third party that's probably not going to have any impact politically. That's just my view, though. Some people don't like when I talk about this stuff, but, you know. No, I love it. I think it's brilliant. And I'm I'm going to poke the bear and try to get all of this out of you. Oh, yeah, poke away. <laughs> There's plenty in here. Okay, so that, that's a good segue. Personally, I believe that the, the vehicle of expat living, of expat life, is a, yeah, it is a vehicle for picking up freedom and liberty where politics leave, left off. Because I don't see that this is going to get any better back home. And I don't think that us spending all of our time working on politics is going to help. I think that it's too far gone. What do you think? Well, people call me blackpilled sometimes because I kind of agree with you here. Like it's, it's, I don't think that, I think what we're dealing with right now and what a lot of people are not grasping, some people might think this is just the latest political issue and it'll just pass. And that, that, that is just not how I see things. I think if you look at the patterns of human history, there's a couple combinations of things going on right now. I mean, there's a mass hysteria. That is what COVID is. And that is not me saying that it's not a real virus or not a real disease or that people aren't really dying. That's my disclaimer to saying, yes, it is a mass hysteria. The reaction to it is a mass hysteria. It does not match the reality of, of the disease whatsoever. So in that sense, it is a mass hysteria. And when you take a mass hysteria and you add modern social media and modern technology and modern forms of communication, which was already becoming a real issue in our society, especially in the U.S., you've seen so much inflammatory and violence around politics. And I think social media and the way it is literally designed to inflame and, and to get reactions and that sort of thing, I, I think it's just the perfect storm of disasters, of disaster here. And, and what I see around me is like a lot of people are changed permanently. I hope it's not permanent, but I've seen people between Trump to COVID literally completely turn into, uh, hate to say it, demons. Like a lot of people have turned into 
effing demons, man. Like, I, and, and I, I use it some that phrase somewhat mockingly, but not really, because if demons were real, would you be able to tell the difference <laughs> between the way a lot of people act, but between their reactions to how things are going right now? So th- I really do see this as a, a major problem and not one that can be changed by even if even if all the COVID restrictions go away tomorrow we're still going to have problems because this is ingrained in a lot of people's worldview now. Um, a lot of people just believe if you are not masking, social distancing, you know, stabbing yourself every three months, then you are killing people. And when someone, when people hold that belief so, so strongly, I mean, what do you do to people that kill people? You stop them, you put them in jail. So if that's how they see the, uh, the anti-vax or whatever kind of people you want, they, they want to label as, you know, what's, what's the logical step of what's going to come next? And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but I also don't want to just live in this world of the white pills where we have technology and everything's great. Well, the technology is also what's being used to enslave us in many ways too. And I think we are in many ways on the verge of a digital genocide. Digital genocide, not in the fact that they're going to, maybe they won't come to your house and shoot you, but do they have to, if they can turn off your bank account and, you know, stop you from going to the supermarket and they switch to a CBDC or, or some of some kind, and then they can just turn off your money like that. That is where things are going. And this is not a conspiracy theory. There's plenty that they openly say, this is where we're going with things. They write books about it and have podcasts about it. I'm just, I'm not making this up. I'm just reporting what they're saying they're doing and watching it unfold. So uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to think that this is just going to blow over in a year or two when, when not only are these plans being put in place, but a lot of people are, are not just accepting them, but becoming advocate, you know, becoming advocates of them. You know, the the um, the foot soldiers are are kind of coming into place, and they're all around us. Well, a lot of people seem to think that oh, when things go back to normal, then I will do A B C D F G. Yeah, then I'll take that trip. Yeah, it's like <laughs> even if, as you had said, everything opened back up tomorrow, all the restrictions, all of these types of things. I think that the psychological damage that is done to these people is so intense that it will stay with us for a generation or more. Even just think about the children and what is happening to kids right now. Seeing this type of behavior, like I've seen like, we went to a birthday party with my my daughter, got invited to a birthday party. We went over there. The birthday boy was having a bite of his cake and in between bites, putting his mask back on. Like lift mask, Cake in mouth, closed mask. And it's it's like, you're like seven years old. Like how you actually are so terrified that the parents have indoctrinated him or the school system or whomever it is into thinking that this invisible virus is going to kill him if he doesn't pull down his mask in like one half of one second is so messed up. It would be comical if it wasn't so frightening. And like, what, what do you think kids like that are going to be like when they grow up? That's what frightens me. Exactly. What really exactly. Me. The psychological damage that is done to society right now, I think we will be feeling for decades to come. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break for a second. So recently, my friend Ollie Richards has released a new set of uncovered courses for learning a second language. These are the exact courses that me and my family used to go from really crummy Spanish to fluent in less than two years. So I am a big believer in his work. Not only that, but we've really become friends over the last couple of years. So I'm really happy to be able to support his program. So if you guys want to learn a second language, if you want to be a digital nomad, if you want to travel the world, then these are the programs for you. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash languages. He has some special promos there, some special deals, new courses coming out, lots of exciting things. I hope that you guys take a second to go and look for it. Learning the local language really shows respect for the people, for the culture, instead of just forcing everyone to learn English. 
Listen, trust me, I know I have been traveling for over 20 years. It's not always easy to learn another language. Even a few words, though, can really make a big difference. And if you want to be an expat and live in another country, like in Latin America where I am, then learning Spanish is pretty much mandatory. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language and check out the work that he does. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. So let's talk a little bit about some of the reasons that you have left the United States because you are now an expat yourself. I suppose it, it all depends on, on how you define these things, but uh, at least for the moment, uh, I have been in Mexico for almost three months now. Well, if we really want to start, go all the way back. Uh, I, like we can go to like my interest in just travel and like being overseas because I was actually one of these people who, in my twenties, I really thought because I didn't make a ton of money, you know, when I was in my early twenties, like a lot of people just getting out of college. And I really thought like, Oh, I I was one of these, like, Oh, I want to travel someday. People want someday when I have the money, because I really thought in my mind that I had to have a lot of money to travel. And somewhere along the way, I started like doing some research and I I had met a couple people that traveled and I was like, Oh my God, how'd you afford that? They're like, Oh, I just saved up the money. And then, you know, I took a month off and I'm like, Oh, you, Oh, and and I found out, like I talked to people like, Oh no, you can stay at hostels. You can eat cheaply. You can buy, like there's, there's ways to travel very cheaply. Like, so, and that, that made me like, okay, well I could save up like a couple grand. I thought I had to have like a hundred thousand dollars to travel and see the world. So when I, I started to change my mindset and say, and like set little goals. So like, well, not a little goal. Cause actually my first big trip overseas after like kind of having that revelation was I spent five weeks backpacking through central America. So I guess, I guess I dove in a little, a little deep, but I, I was 30 years old. I mean, that was the first time I had really traveled. I had been, I'd been outside the country. I've been to Canada, I've been to Mexico. I, I did a semester living in Manchester, England. So it's not like I never left the country, but it wasn't like I didn't care. Like I wasn't like passionate about seeing other cultures. And, but that trip really opened my eyes, man. It's in so many ways, like just meeting people and, you know, talking to people in my very shitty Spanish, which some would argue is still shitty, but it's, it was a lot shittier then. I know I knew maybe four words at the time, but you know, you, you've been in those situations where you don't, you think you don't speak the language and the other guy doesn't. And next thing you know, it's four in the morning and somehow you're, you're basically understanding everything each other are, are talking about, or at least you think you do one or the other. So I had a lot of experiences that, that just meeting people from completely different cultures, not just locals in like Guatemala, Nicaragua. And I absolutely loved being in those countries and, and meeting the local people there, but also you meet other travelers. So I, I met people from Australia, from Israel, from Europe. And what amazed me by all of them, first of all, they're all 19 or 18 or whatever. And, and they had already, already traveled for a couple of years, a lot of them. And I was like, man, I missed not, not like I missed out, like it's too late or anything, but just like, wow, this is in other parts of the world. They have a totally different mindset about travel. I don't know what it is about the United States where it's just not emphasized. It's just like, you know, we're the best, we're the best country. Why would you even need to go somewhere else? There's a lot of weird stuff going on in the world. Like it's really just not emphasized or pushed in any way, shape or form. But that trip really changed my entire perspective on traveling. And I think even, I think from that moment, I always had the desire to to at least like travel more and maybe even live in other countries eventually. So it's, that's been brewing in me for the last decade or so. And I've done a a decent amount of traveling since then, but you know, I always did have to return and and to work and eventually I ended up with a full-time job for almost the last five years. So that obviously hindered how much I could travel because you can only get two or three weeks off maximum. And, and that was really grinding on me too. Cause I had been so used to traveling a lot before that. And it was like, it's like the golden handcuffs thing. It's like, I've got a great salary, I have great insurance, great benefits, all this stuff on paper that you would, you know, just, just kill to 
have, but it wasn't satisfying to me. And it was crushing my soul slowly, especially as I found myself unable to travel more and more just because of the time. But eventually, just to get to, to where we are now a little quicker, in 2019 or so, I, I had not been traveling in a lot in a while. And I just decided like, I'm taking a trip by myself. But I, or no, I didn't I didn't decide by myself. Like I asked a few friends like, hey, do you want to go somewhere like go on a trip? And, you know, at, at this point, at this age that, that I was then, I was like 39 at the time. By that point, most of my friends that I had maybe traveled with before or would just go on crazy adventures with on the fly to Las Vegas or something, most of those were married or had kids and just weren't going to take off on a trip with, with old Mark Claire anymore. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go on a trip by myself, which I had done before. I actually spent about a month in Mexico by myself in uh, like 2010 and spent a week in, in Cuba. So I had traveled myself a little bit. It was actually one of the most rewarding experiences traveling by myself because then you're really forced to get out of the box. You're really forced to you know talk to other people because you don't have anybody else at that point. So that, that was a, you know, a tremendously growing experience for me too. But yeah, so I decided I was going to take a trip to Mexico City because even though I'd been throughout Mexico, I'd never been to Mexico City, which I'd heard so many great things about. It's just, you know, a really fun international city. And I says, and that, that's to me, it was like, okay, that's a trip I can just go do. It's a, it's a four hour flight from Los Angeles. I can just go do a week here and, you know, no big deal. So I, and I was going to take the trip later in the year, but then we suddenly got this like random week off at work for in July. And I was like, it was like two weeks ahead of time notice. And I was like, well, they're paying me just an extra week off. It was basically an extra week of vacation out of the blue. So I was like, well, why don't I just move this idea up and just go right now? So I just booked a ticket to Mexico city. Yeah. So uh, I kind of just got to Mexico city. I spent like you know, four or five days just spending alone time. It's funny how you can spend alone time in a city of like, you know, 25 million people or something. But, you know, I, I spent my days exploring the city, you know, talking to some people here and there in bars at night, but never really like super connecting with anybody. I was just there to, I, I was there more to just like kind of unwind and like, you know, see another city and not necessarily there to meet people. <laughs> but as these things tend to happen and towards the end of the week, I got a little bored by myself. So I did, I will, I will confess. Uh, my wife might, might not like it. Uh, I did, I did confess. I did open the, the Tinder app and, and, and do, do a little bit of the swiping as the, as the kids say. So I, I did connect with a, a lovely young woman there and we decided to just meet up and I'll give you the, the short version of the story. We really, really hit it off. That's the really short <laughs> you version guys of the met story. On Tinder? I didn't know that. We did. Yes. Uh, yes. We are. Our official story was we met at the aquarium. I don't know how much better that is because <laughs> I was actually going to go to an aquarium that day for no reason. I've just, I've been walking the city for five days straight and I was just kind of sick of walking and I found this aquarium. So I was actually texting with her while I was in line for the aquarium and she's like, Oh, Hey, do you want to, do you want to go hang out later and you know go to the park and like get a drink or something? And I was like, yeah, sure. As soon as I finish the aquarium. And as soon as I said that, I was like, I just, this, I just turned down a beautiful woman and said, after I finished the aquarium, what's wrong with me? So then I was like, actually, no, I'm good. I'm free right now. <laughs> so yeah. So I, we ended up meeting up and, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the short version, the, the non-scandalous version is that we are, our Friday night date turned into a five day date. So we, we were basically inseparable for the next five days. And sometime before I left, it was actually, this actually took place at Teotihuacan, the, uh, just incredible, uh, pyramids, uh, not too far outside Mexico city. I expressed my feelings to her, so to speak, and they were immediately returned and and I'm not kidding you. Like when at, at this moment, I'm just going to give you the whole tale. I guess at this moment, this is not a joke. We were on top of the of the pyramid of the sun in Teotihuacan, and we 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 kissed and embraced. And as we did this, this really happened, Mikel. Butterflies started flying around. <laughs> <our head. laughs> 
Is, I swear this happened. And so I was like, well, okay, I, I guess this is maybe a sign or something. Something. And But when I made that decision, you know, I knew that I was taking a big risk there. And I, because, you know, I knew this is someone, I didn't really know all the details, but I knew she was Mexican and I knew I was American. I knew that at, at, at worst case, talk about a long distance relationship. I mean, crossing borders. I mean, that's like crazy. I would never, I would have never have thought to do, to even entertain the idea, to be honest. But, you know, I never I had met my Diane before. So that was a different story. So yeah, needless to say, we were seeing each other for a while and we were, we were kind of making it work going back and forth. She was luckily able to get a tourist visa very easily because she had had one like twice previously. So it was basically just a renewal when she went in to get it. For most Mexicans, it's hard, like really hard, like almost impossible actually. And so like uh, when she was in line, like waiting, um, you know, for her appointment, six people in front of her all left crying and angry because they were all denied. Like it, it's very, very difficult to get even a, a, tour, a, a visa to just visit the U.S. from, from a lot of countries, most countries, as you, as you know. But yeah, um, she got that. And, you know, we kind of spent the next year year or so kind of seeing each other as, as best as we can, kind of going back and forth. And then we actually got to this point in time where it was like, uh, the, I think it was like April of 2020 that was coming up. And we, this is like earlier in the year. We're like, man, I don't know. Like I had a bunch of work in April. She had a bunch of work um, here in Mexico. And we were just like, I don't know how we're going to even see each other this month. So we're like, well... Uh, I guess we'll just, I guess April, we just won't see each other that month. You know, I guess it is what it is. And then next thing you know, suddenly we don't have any work to worry about because this COVID thing came <laughs> and I was furloughed from my job. All her productions were canceled. Sounds terrible, but it's kind of what we were asking for in a roundabout in like a twilight zone kind of way. We're like, man, if only we could find a way to spend this time together. So we spent the entire month of April together. Actually, we spent actually spent the next three months together in Mexico in a, in a small town called Xochitepec, which is um, about an hour and a half outside Mexico City. She has like friends and family in the area. So we rented a house from a friend of a friend. And for a third of the price of the shitty little apartment I had in, in Los Angeles, we had a huge huge house with four bedrooms with a pool and eating good food. I lost 30 pounds in those three months, not trying to do anything in particular, but I was living in a really hot place. It's really hot, really hot in that part of the the, uh, the country and eat, just eating fresh food, exercising more, swimming every day because we had the pool. So, I mean, it was just, and I was just so much happier and healthier and it really drove home for me how much the lifestyle I had been living was just not the right one for me. It was going to drive me to the grave. I mean, we're all going to go there eventually, but it was going to drive me earlier, I felt. So at, at that point is when I started really thinking thinking, we got to get more to this kind of life, wherever it may be. Like this is more the life. Obviously I need to work too in some capacity because we didn't really do anything for those three months except spend time together, but it was, it was time together. We really needed. So yeah, I mean, and then uh, shortly after that I proposed and here we are, we, we ended up, you know, we were planning to get married, you know, like a year and a half or so later. But when we started looking into things and talking to a lawyer and really starting to understand the immigration laws, like she was actually in the U S with me at the time on her, on her visa. And we started looking at things and she was supposed to go home. Like, a week later, and it's really complicated. Uh, um, you know, immigration to the U.S., but you can get married in the U.S. if you're on a tourist visa, as long as you did not come with that intention, which we did not. She was already there, so we just decided, you know what? Because this was a long process, like for her to get a green card. Basically, we're just looking for normalcy. We wanted to be able to travel freely and not worry, because even when you're on a tourist visa, if you have too many entries and exits, they'll stop, start asking questions. Like the time before that, they had asked her something about, like, oh, what are you? Why are you coming in and out so much? And you don't want to lie to immigration ever. So she told the truth, like, I'm just coming to see my boyfriend. And that was fine. 
But you do that enough, eventually they're going to inquire, like, are you living here? And it's just but an extra layer of stress we didn't want to have. So we decided to start that process as soon as we could. So we did kind of a turbo marriage in Vegas to start the immigration process going. So she did eventually end up getting a green card. The really hard part was that was that she couldn't come back to Mexico that entire time, which turned into eight and a half months. Our lawyer guaranteed us it wouldn't be more than three or four. Guarantee. So don't listen to lawyers necessarily. I'm sure there's good ones. You know good ones. Uh, this was not a good one, but I'm not going to go too too much into that. But the truth is about when it comes to immigration, you're just choosing, especially when through marriage and stuff like that, you're just picking from a series of bad options. If you're already in the U.S. when you get married and you're not allowed to leave during the green card process, so that's one bad option, especially if you have family here like she does. That was really difficult for her. And then the other way, though, if you get married outside of the United States, then you have to wait like for this process to to take place. And it's a lot longer process to do it outside the United States. And then it's, it's questionable whether or not you should really travel on your tourist visa while you're in the process of, while you're in the process of converting to immigration. Some lawyers say, sure, it's fine. Other lawyers say, well, there's a good chance they'll kick you out. And if, and if something gets messed up in that process, it's over. You know, the whole thing's over. So it's, it's just, it's a series of difficult decisions that you have to navigate. That's what we were really just going through that whole time. But yeah, she did get that. And then, but yeah, a couple months ago, it was just uh, for various reasons. I, I left my job and, you know, we've, we've been talking for a while. Like if originally we were just going to first move to Mexico. Then we were starting to look at Florida. And really the point is we want to have the freedom to go wherever we want. We can go together, the three of us, because uh, she has a son as well, who we have, who we have custody of now. So this is the only country where the three of us can be together. Well, not, that's actually not, that's not true. He has a passport. So he can go to other countries, a lot of other countries actually, but he can't go to the United States, even though he's my stepson, even though he's, you know, she's a green card holder, he's still in the process. And you'd like to think with a kid, it would just be like that, but it's not. So that's, that's where we are right now. We're just kind of waiting for that, waiting to have the ability to go somewhere in the U.S., to go somewhere else, to really do whatever we want to do. But you can, uh, you can pick away at whatever you want from there. <laughs> no, it's really interesting for me because, I mean, I've been kind of by your side. We've been talking every week as you've been going through this process. Before we were friends, well, you were single, Mark, and then... Then you disappeared for a little bit. And I was like, what the hell is Mark doing? <laughs> and then it's like, oh, a new girl entered. And so I've been kind of following along through our conversations, but I've never actually <laughs> had it real like, time. yeah, laid out for me the entire thing. And I did not know that you met mm -hmm. on Tinder. So that's pretty yeah, crazy. Yeah. That's pretty We wild. don't usually talk about that part too much. But <laughs> well, whatever. I'm sure I won't tell anybody else just be between you and just I. Just a okay? couple thousand uh, people. Yeah. <laughs> just several thousand people. Exactly. Okay. So. I guess, give me some insights from your side. I, I mean, I certainly have from my side, but I'm, I'm interested from your side. What has it been like dating and then marrying someone who comes from a different country, a different culture, a different language? What has your experience been like with that? Well, my wife speaks really good English, like very fluent English. So that was good just from the bat that, that, you know, she was essentially fluent and we had no problem communicating, you know, from the get go. So obviously that's, that's a hurdle that other people might you know, have more of a difficult hurdle with, depending on where they meet someone and what everyone's language, language level is. So that wasn't the challenge. Although the, ta the challenging part is, you know, we only speak to each other in English. So I'm trying to get better with my Spanish and I have to kind of use other resources because it's just easier. If she wants to tell me something, she can spend 10 minutes, like, you know, dissecting a couple more words that I don't know in Spanish or she can just tell me the thing. So it's like, that's usually what, it, what happens in reality. But yeah, I mean, it's, 
I don't know. I, th- I think you get to really see a lot of the cultural differences spending more time in a country than if you were just, you know, showing up for a vacation or something and just partying the whole time. You know, you really get to, to understand the culture a little bit better. And I, I really love the culture of Mexico. There's not, I don't love everything about Mexico City. A lot of masks here. I'm not a fan of that, but I love the people. And and this is something consistent about almost everywhere in Mexico. I mean, you've heard the phrase, mi casa es tu casa. And it's it's so true. I mean, you really are treated, not just by my, my wife's family, who's completely, you know, embraced me, this gringo shows up out of nowhere so you know just swipes her daughter away their daughter away but you know they, they've been nothing but just amazing just embracing me and and but that's like that's true of people i barely know that's true of people i, I meet on the street you just you feel a certain sense of warmth here that you really don't necessarily get everywhere in the united states now maybe it's a little more of a stark contrast for me because i come from you know los angeles the land of, of soulless people so you know maybe that that stands out a little more to me because like, maybe i just forgot what it was like to walk around the street and see people smile smile at you especially in the last year and a half in los angeles whenever i walk down the street everyone's got a fucking mask on uh, part of my french but i just the mask thing gets me fired up um so yeah i mean and, and that is a thing here but it's still it is different here in Mexico City. Yes, there are masks everywhere. And no, I don't love that. But there's no Karens. Like, there's not like, a, no one's angry at me for not wearing a mask. No one's going to scream at me. It's just what a lot of people do. And I think a, lot, a large part of that is maybe just like, I, I don't know exactly why, to be honest. I think a large part of it is, a, you know, like a culture of respect. And it's maybe like seen as respectful to other people. So people just do it. Even if they're walking their dog alone or exercising in the park alone or whatever. I don't know. It's the, it's the it's my least favorite part about the specific city I live in for sure. But the cultural warmth is still there um, even within that. And it's just it's just a very different feeling. And I, I think you get to by actually being part of a family in in a different country, you really get to learn you know see those differences and similarities. I guess both when you're really on the ground, really living, not just not just visiting. Because even you know for the you know, first year year and a half when I come here, we're still kind of in party mode whenever I come because we're only going to be seeing each other for X amount of days. So we're just kind of going out and having fun and not really getting that immersed in the culture necessarily. So it's definitely a difference when you're actually at least when you move from dating to like being married and actually like you know everyone meets each other's families and everything. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I, I can say it's definitely it's definitely different than if you were with someone in the same country because there's there's challenges there. There's just, there's no way around it, but it's absolutely worth it. Cause you know, the, the day I made that decision to sort of express my feelings, I, I knew there were many challenges ahead and I just fully embraced them. I said, that's okay. You know, whatever they are, I don't know what they all are, but I'm going to roll with them because this just feels like the right thing to do. So yeah, it's worked out so far. <laughs> so the different dynamics because of language, I think are always very interesting. I mean, yes, as you said, she speaks very good English and then I've been on the phone and we've all hung out and had beers together and stuff online. But still, English is a second language. I know in my marriage, I've had to be very sensitive in the way that I speak. Oh, yeah. We can still have misunderstandings, sure. Because just like certain phrases or words, like, or I might say something that's like a joke and then it doesn't translate quite that way. And then it's like, oh, I think you totally misunderstood what I was saying there. And then, you know, eventually we got to figure that out. But yeah. I think that the things are always on a slightly different footing as well. When the person that you're with is speaking your language, I mean, your quote unquote, of course, but I mean... They're speaking it as a secondary language. So then I think that there has to be a certain amount of extra sensitivity from you to make them feel more comfortable and understand. And like I've gotten frustrated before because I'm trying to express something and my wife doesn't understand. But actually, that's my fault. That's not her fault. I have to take personal responsibility for that. Have you ever had situations like this where it's like you have to kind of remind yourself the extra steps and the extra things that are being done and how this dynamic is in the relationship? 
For sure, especially because her English is so good that I can forget that it's the second language. For sure. That's, that's the thing. It would almost be easier if it wasn't that great. Then I would like always have reminders. But I just forget because he, she is so fluent, essentially. But even like you said, when you're fluent, it still is a second language. So it's it and it's it's always gonna be your not your first language. So there are certain things you won't even, you know, she'll be like, Oh, so what is that word for that? Or she'll say a word slightly differently. And it, that's when I have little reminders that like, oh yeah, this is not her first thing. Like just because she's so good at it, you know. It's not, you know, there, there might be little misunderstandings here and there. So yeah, there, there are things like that for sure. Or there's also misunderstandings the other way where I, I you know, I'm trying to do my best and I'm, I'm trying to, when she has friends over, like they'll start talking and be like, oh no, we should speak English. Cause a lot of their friends know English too. And I'm like, no, 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 please speak Spanish. Like I, I'd, and then, but sometimes, you know, I'll think I know what they're talking about and I'll kind of be right, but there's just some key aspect that I missed. And then I'll, I'll jump in and be like, oh yeah, there was that one time that we did this. And then she's like, yeah, I was just talking about that. I was like, oh yeah, I, I knew we were on the right subject, but I'm just, I'm not because fast, like I, I can, I'm good with conversational Spanish. I can go out, talk to the taxi driver, talk to people at the store. Like, you know, I don't feel uncomfortable at all, but yeah, like when it's like my wife and her friends all talking and they're not even, you know, they're just blazing away. Like then it's like, I'm picking up a lot of the words. So I kind of know what's going on, but I, maybe I'm missing some things. And then, you know, when I try to like show my Spanish and comment, then that's when I realize, oh yeah, I missed like a lot of it. <laughs> so yeah, there are those dynamics. Well, group conversations are notoriously difficult anyways, because there's a certain amount of dynamic, especially when people have known each other for an extended period of time. There's going to be mannerisms and colloquialisms that even if you studied the second language, it's going to be very hard to follow along. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about with Spanish. My Spanish is pretty darn good right now. I can I can get by just fine and I can have conversations, but it's so different having conversations like one-on-one face-to-face with someone or being out at a restaurant or a bar with five or six people and the music's going and having a group conversation about whatever the topic may be. It's so easy to, you know, miss a couple of words and then miss a couple more. And it becomes this cumulative effect where at the end I'm like, I just kind of start tuning you're out. You're playing some point. catch up yeah. the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> if you miss one word, you're fine. But then once you realize you missed six and you're still thinking about the second one, you're like, wait, I just, I just lost the whole thing. Exactly. Exactly. What about from you entering Mexico city and being around her family and friends and people that she's known for ever? Have you found it difficult to step into her life opposed to going to a new location where both of you don't know anyone? Okay. Yes. Maybe it's her country and it's, in Spanish, but then maybe you guys are on a slightly different or slightly more similar footing. What has it been like going to a country to, to the place that she was born in? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I wasn't born in Los Angeles, but I lived there for almost 20 years. So we kind of like just switch roles because she was stuck in the U S for eight months. And so she was kind of in my life and especially too, cause I was going to work full time. Then she was like, kind of like, you know, had a lot of like spent a lot of time for herself. And like, she, she knew like, obviously she, we met friends of mine and she met their wives, but they're not really friends. You know, there's kind of people she met. So that was really, you know, very difficult and very challenging for her. So now the roles are kind of reversed. I'm happy. I love being here. And it's to me, it's not that hard because a, I'm a little bit of an introvert anyway. So like, you know, I go into my office and I do my alone stuff and, and whatever, but I really enjoy, you know, going, I mean, her, like I said, her family just totally embraced me and they actually threw just cause I mentioned like, Oh yeah, I'd love to have a Thanksgiving Turkey. So they went out and made me a Thanksgiving meal on Thanksgiving wow. and got a Turkey. And, and my wife made us made stuffing like which she never even had before. Like just, they just totally made me feel as at home as possible. And I, I stuffed myself just like uh, Thanksgiving's of old. So, and, and yeah, whenever, I hang out with her friends. We all, you know, get along. Like I said, sometimes I, I fall behind on the conversation, but now it, it, for me, it's been, I don't want to say easy, but 
kind of easy. <laughs> like, you know, I think the hardest part is just the language still and, and just feeling like at some point I can get lost if it's all in Spanish, but I don't want to be like, Hey, switch to English. Cause I want to be lost. I, I want to get lost so I can, you know, find my way out. Cause that, that's part of the process. So I, I don't want to be babied with it. I got, I got to just, you know, keep tossing myself in the fire. But yeah, I mean, to me, the transition has been awesome. I mean, I've only been here a couple months and who knows where things take us, but you know, I, I I've always felt honestly, every time I visited Mexico, I felt very much at home here. Like it just feels like a very, it's just a warm, literally, you know, with the, the weather and also just with the people place. So to me, it's just like a place I wanted to be already. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how long we'll stay in the city specifically. If we're, if we're going to be here much longer, we might go to a, uh, a, a more beach centric location. Although the problem there is like any of the beach towns, it's really hard to get good internet. And obviously I need good internet if I'm going to be podcasting and all that stuff. So that's just one of the biggest challenges. Uh, there's a lot of challenges actually. I like, like culturally, I love it, but there's certain things like dealing with the government. Yes. The government sucks everywhere. And it's always annoying here. It's like t- on steroids. The, like, it's like, imagine the government, if they just made no money and really didn't care about their job. And there are also no consequences if they don't do their job. Well, you are, you can be, I mean, we have been trying to re- just do something so simple so I can get my temporary residency here, which will turn into a permanent residency. Should be very easy. Should be very easy through marriage, but just finding out the right documents we need and finding out what office to go to and calling places. And I mean, j- people hang up on you like all the time, private companies too, as much as we libertarians like to be like, Oh, private companies, bro. And I agree. They're better than the government, but here the private companies kind of suck too. Like we have spent, my wife spent a week on the phone with Telmex trying to get better internet, about a year and a half ago. And then it's been another drama with them here. And it's just like, and they will literally like, that's one good thing about the U S is they have stellar customer service. Like you can just keep talking. No one's going to hang up on you. You can eventually get to a manager and you're probably to get your money back or a free thing. Like, and I'm the king of this. Like I'd never give up on the phone with the customer service. Like I always get my money back or whatever, even if it takes me hours, that doesn't work here. Good, good use of your time. <laughs> entrepreneurial Mark. My goodness. Well, yeah. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is customer service is abysmal here. I mean, it's it's really bad. Like they will literally just hang up on you if you're too much trouble. And it's happened like so many times. My wife trying to like deal with the internet company. So like little stuff like that. It's like annoying, but it's to me, I don't know. There's like charm in it too because I'm still like sort of new to being here all the time. And I just think it's kind of funny <laughs> still. My wife does not think it's funny because she grew up here and she's been dealing with this her whole life. So it's not in no way novel to her. To me, it's the, the yeah, to me, like the, the poor communication and the lack of people giving a shit about their own jobs or their job for the government or the private company. I just find it sort of oddly charming, even if it leads to a lot of frustration, but I'm weird. I think that that is not just Mexico. Actually, many places that I've been in the world, it is extraordinarily frustrating. It might be more the U.S. that is the oddball in terms of how like we're all like be on time and do this and then you know, treat everybody with cust- you know, customer service is number one. I think that's like that's more the rarity. Yeah. Ooh. Showing up on time, I think, is just so challenging down in this part of the world. I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know. It's like uh, I'll be there at Tuesday at 10 a.m. They'll be there on Tuesday. Might not be 10 a.m. It'll probably be like two Tuesdays from now. It'll be completely the wrong week, you know? And it won't be 10 a.m. It'll be like 10 p.m. or something like that. Like it's everything is completely wrong. Yeah, it is very much a cultural thing. Yeah, I've had my wife try to explain it to me. And she's like, sometimes she's like, I don't really know other times. But I also think it is a little bit like... I think that I think it comes down to like Mexicans value time with their family and their loved ones as like the highest priority, much higher than a priority of like being on time to some some meeting with someone or whatever. So 
maybe if you spend 30 more minutes with your kid and you got to blow off and you're like, yeah, that guy I'll, won't care because I'll show up because we're in Mexico and we all know this is how it works. That's the thing. Everybody knows how it works. So it only it only seems weird to like some gringo that just shows up and thinks that the cable guy is going to be there at 10 when he says 10. It doesn't mean that at all. But like here, it's kind of like accepted because like everybody knows that that's just the way it is. So no one's really even upset when people show up late unless they're like a foreigner and we're not used to that because it's just 10 a.m. Like everyone knows that doesn't, doesn't mean 10 a.m. The person saying it knows it. The person who has the person coming knows it. Everybody knows it. Uh, so no one really gets extra frustrated about it, you know, except for us as gringos. I'm still getting annoyed. I'm getting better by all means. You just got to get to a Zen place about yeah, it. Yeah, like we were, okay, we went to do our family photos recently and we basically left the house when we were supposed to be there. And my mother was like super freaking out. Like we were going to be late. And I'm like, I know I hate this. You know, we got two kids and a whole group of us to bundle everyone together and get them all ready. And I'm like, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. So we showed up completely late, but they were more late. The photographer was more late than we were. So it ended up being You're probably okay. sweating and <laughs> sweating on the way there. Like, Oh my God, we're not going to make it. And yeah, 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 exactly. Never worry about that in a Latin American country. <laughs> and I, I, I do think that your insights on the priority levels are very different that they do want to spend more time with family. It's also just so funny because I have often heard Panamanians and I'll, I'll speak more to Panamanians than I will Mexicans, but Panamanians say, Oh, the rest of Panamanians are always late and they always behave like this, but I'm different. I am special. I am always on time. Always. They're the worst, actually. They're like, <laughs> they're more late than everybody else. But I swear to God, in their own minds, they really think like they're very punctual and they're really responsible. They get all of this type of stuff done. And I'm everybody don't send me hate mail here. I absolutely love my time here in Panama and I love Latino culture and music and food and, and everything. And I, I understand it's just a piece of it. And it doesn't speak to every single person in the world who lives down here. But it is something that if you are thinking about moving to Latin America to know and understand. For sure. Yep. Okay, Mark. So in this conversation, you really painted us a clear picture, you know, right all the way from the beginning of starting your libertarian journey to moving into podcasting as a career to your love of travel and where that came from and visiting Mexico and the romance of meeting your wife and to immigration in the US and immigration in Mexico and you all the challenges you faced with the languages and everything that's happened with the bureaucracy. I guess kind of my final question for you is, has it been worth it? Has doing all of these extra steps and becoming an expat and all the hassles and all the extra work and paperwork and time wasted in all of this, has it been worth it? Well, the overall journey, no doubt about it. I mean, absolutely. Like we, we had a lot of like conversations and decisions, like, should we try to get a green card? Should we not? Cause there's a lot of cons potentially and a lot of pros as well. Like I saved a lot of money cause my wife was a green card holder now, instead of just a person, you know, and my wife who's a green card holder that cut my taxable income in half. So there's definitely short-term benefits uh, as, as well. But at the end of the day, like I have a family, an amazing family. And, you know, all these steps that we've gone through have been about, have all been a factor in bringing this, the three of us together. And I'm so eternally grateful for it that, yeah, sure. I can look back and say like, oh, maybe we could have done this thing different or this thing different. Uh, there's actually a number of things we probably could have done different because we're, we're just figuring this out as we go and maybe didn't get all the best advice on the way. But in terms of just the overall journey, of course it's worth it. I mean, I would, I would, I would do it if it was a hundred times harder, uh, no doubt about it. Cause I'm, I'm in so much of a better place now, not just because of the expat ass 
aspect of it, although that is a, a big part of it. Because I think just being in another country just it gives you a different perspective and it gives you just a different way to look at the world and, and a way to look at life. And it just it can open your mind to new new ways of thinking that you would never have if you just stayed in the same place. So yeah, it's absolutely worth it. There's definitely a number of things. Who knows? Maybe in five years we might look back and say, okay, we maybe should have done this legal thing different or maybe time this differently. I don't know. There's but again, at the end of the day. Immigration stuff is a series of, of bad options because the, the easy option should just be it's instant, at, le at least through marriage. Like I'm not trying to get into an open borders, closed borders debate, but if it's your family, your wife and, and your son, like there should be no, there should be barely any paperwork as far as I'm concerned. I mean, at least you shouldn't have to do what we've been doing. And, and we're, we're textbook, the best case where there's nothing complicated about our scenario, like whatever, like our marriage is very clear and valid and all this stuff. And it's still taking, a, it's still, it was just a really long time and is still taking a long time uh, with my stepson's immigration. So, you know, it's, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous amount. Like anyone that gets into a relationship overseas should know what they're getting into ahead of time. But I, I wouldn't change anything in terms of like, you know, pursuing it and pursuing, you know, everything, everything we've done along the way, regardless of like what details we might, might change. But at the end of the day, it's all, it's all about just bringing our family together and, you know, having, having the freedom to go wherever we want. That's the thing. So we want all of us to have all the papers that let us go wherever we might choose so we can decide tomorrow we're going to go to this place and we don't have to worry. Oh, wait, one of us can't or one, you know, so that, that's really what it's been all about. So that's why my wife's got a green card. I'm getting Mexican residency. Stepson's going to have both those things pretty soon. So, and then, because even just having, as you know, even just having different passports, different residencies can change, you know, what country you can go into and, and the visa process is there. So when all three of us have both, you know, we might say, all right, we're going to go to this country and okay, today we're going to use our Mexican residencies and passports because this is going to be better here. Oh, this time we're going to use our US one because it's a better thing here. So it's just going to give us so much more freedom. So yeah, it's def definitely worth pursuing overall as, as much as we, I wish it didn't need to be pursued in this way, going through all these bureaucracies. Yes, I would change all that. I would change the system existing, but it does. So it's, it, it, for me, it's completely worth it. And I, I would do it a thousand times over to be where I am right now. Brilliant. Mark, I love it. An absolute joy to have you on the show today. I have been waiting for this episode for so, so long. I've invited you on so many times and you're like, no, not right yet. Not now. Next time. Well, well, you're partially responsible too, because you definitely planted, I wouldn't say seeds, you planted like whole trees of expat ideas in me. And obviously I've, since we first connected, I've been a big fan of your show. And uh, yeah, it's definitely been, uh, I think listening to the expat money show, not to just do a commercial for you on your own show here, but it really has helped me take like the theoretical and put it into like the action and then just hearing all these stories of people like you realize, okay, none of these are superheroes. They're just people like me who kind of put themselves on another journey. And yeah, it's just been an absolutely tremendous resource in terms of, in terms of everywhere I've gotten as well. Thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate that. And if my listeners, they want to check out Lions of Liberty with your beautiful background there, where can we send them? Well, you can find everything at lionsofliberty.com or search Lions of Liberty on uh, your, you know, your favorite podcatcher. We're also on YouTube for now. You can also find our backup, our mirror page on Odyssey as well. We will never be taken down from there because sometimes we talk about controversial things. And YouTube doesn't always like that. So one podcast I didn't get to mention, I also host another podcast in the non-political realm called the Second Print Comics Podcast. So if there are any comic book fans listening or just, you know, nerdy sci-fi type of people, uh, I think you might really enjoy that show as well. You can, so you can find that at secondprintcomics.com. That's the word second spelled out. So yeah, check that out. If you, if you enjoy listening to me to talk about this stuff and you like comics, you might enjoy hearing me talk about that stuff too. Who knows? Well, I have not had a chance to listen to Second Print Comics. I should for sure. But I have listened to ooh, probably 100 episodes of Lions of Liberty and had 
listened to so many amazing guests on your show. And actually, I like your show so much because it is not stuffy by any means. Like, I've heard episodes where you guys are like getting drunk in the living room talking about liberty <laughs> yes. and stuff. And I'm like Absolutely. pissing myself laughing to these conversations. And I'm like, that's actually going to make this more interesting for me to listen to politics because politics is not something that I am super passionate about by any means. I'm not even American myself. So following a lot of US politics is not at the top of my radar, but listening to your show gives it a completely different perspective. And I start to learn a lot of the different players involved and different perspective, different ideas, which is is what I am really into is trying to understand people and different perspectives. So I'm a big fan of your work. Make sure you, everybody, you go and check it out at Lions of Liberty. And Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And I will talk to you soon. All right. I hope you enjoyed that little conversation of mine from late last year. And I am going to give you an update, but on the subject of Mikel and expat money, I got to say, I have gotten to know Mikel as we talked about during the interview very, very well over the last few years. And, uh, you know, on the subject of his awesome podcast, the expat money show, I got to let you know about this awesome summit he is doing at the end of this year. This is not a paid advertisement, but it's just something you have to know about, especially now that he has a guest that I'm pretty sure a guest speaker that I'm pretty sure a lot of you are going to be interested in hearing from. That is the great, the man who inspired this podcast, Ron Paul, will be speaking at the Expat Money Summit this November. This is an absolutely free summit and it's entirely online and you can even access it if you can't get it live. So there's really just no reason not to be checking it out. And there are so many great names speaking there besides Ron Paul. You also have Doug Casey, uh, the international man. You have James Guzman, who's been on the show before, Michael Strong, past guest of the show, and just a huge number of names. And this is really not just for people who are trying to leave the country or become expats because there's so much knowledge jam-packed into this, this event, whether it's about gold and silver investing, uh, different entrepreneurial ventures, creating communities. These are This is all valuable knowledge that everybody can use. And you know, even me, even me myself, I ended up, uh, since this interview, as I'll talk about more in a second, uh, veering back to the US and settling in Florida now, but I still learned so much from the concepts uh, of the expat lifestyle, the kind of stuff that Mikel and all of his uh, friends and associates speak about that it's really not just about whether you want to live in any particular country. It really is at the end of the day, protecting your wealth and becoming more independent from the system. And that is something I think we can all benefit from learning more about. So do head over to that summit, get your free ticket at expatmoneysummit.com. You don't want to miss Ron Paul. My God, every time Ron Paul speaks, we should all be listening. So check that out. And um, to update you guys a little bit more on my own uh, scenario, you know, as I talked about in the interview with Mikel, uh, we were kind of waiting on immigration for my stepson. And that, that's kind of the reason we were in Mexico, because uh, we did get full custody of him during this process. And or at least my wife did anyway in Mexico. I don't I don't really have. Well, that, that's part of this. I'm we're not technically married in Mexico. We are married everywhere, obviously. But I know that, that was kind of like part of the problem is we couldn't register our marriage in Mexico because as as I talked about in the interview, we were trying to get my temporary residence see while I was there just to have that extra option of a place that we can go and easily be residents. Um, but we were not able to do that because, because again, like I talked about in the show, uh, sometimes government bureaucracy is so inept that you can't even get anything done. And that is absolutely the case with our situation in Mexico. Uh, my wife had an error on her birth certificate from when they had updated the system from analog to digital years ago. Every time she tries to fix it, it doesn't actually get fixed. And because of that error, every time we try to register our marriage, they refuse to register our marriage. And, you know, with trying to get residency via marriage, uh, it was a problem. So as, as hard as it is to get residency, to get a green card in the U.S., we were actually able to do it easier than we were 
for me to get it the other way around, which is typically, you know, being married in legally everywhere. So it, it really is, um, it, it really is a hell of a saga. So we were, we we're hoping, even though we ended up coming back to Florida for a number of reasons, um, you know, I, I will not even be, you know, well, I shouldn't say it's, it's the only reason because we actually discussed moving to Florida almost two years ago. Um, I want to say, yeah, yeah. Like December of 2020 or so is when it had first come up and I had first, uh, kind of started thinking about it, um, for, for many reasons, um, including, uh, you know, easy access to her home country in Mexico, um, international airports there, you know, Tampa, Orlando, very easy to travel in and out. Also having potential work for both of us, um, for what I do professionally or for what she does professionally, we have a number of opportunities in Florida and, uh, you know, what we're running into in Mexico even is, you know, originally, you know, when we first went there, as I talked about uh, in the interview, it was really to find more freedom. And in many ways, we were finding that there there early on. But as COVID progressed and as things changed, both in Mexico and in the U.S., um, the place I felt the most free was actually in the southern U.S., where no one was wearing masks, uh, where, and especially in Florida, where there were actually being rules put in place, laws being put in place that some might even call status uh, that would prevent companies from enforcing vaccine mandates on its citizens. And I do appreciate and respect that stance. Let's just put it that way. I've talked about this stuff a lot on the show here. And, um, you know, so that, that was a huge factor for both of us, uh, in moving to Florida, but yeah, we were hoping to get Mexican residency along the way, but you know, at least luckily Mexico is, is a pretty easy country to come to as a tourist. So even without having that residency, if we ever need to go back there, it's really easy to pop in. And I know that if we're, if we actually decide to be there, we'll be able to get that worked out eventually. It was just very difficult, uh, with where we were, but yeah, I mean, what basically what we had, I think I was still in Mexico City when I talked to Mikhail back in November or December. Eventually, we decided to move to Playa del Carmen in Mexico, which is where we spent the last seven or eight months ago or so. Reason behind that, well, A, the masking in the city and just the COVID hysteria had taken it over, over the place. And it was literally... 98, 99% masks without even a mandate requiring it everywhere you go. And you couldn't go inside anywhere without a mask. And if you went outside, it's not like things got any better outside. Uh, my wife and I were typically the only people walking around. If we went on a walk at night, the only ones we would see without a mask in the whole place. So it was just unbearable. It was honestly, it became worse than LA to me with, because even in LA, eventually there were some people taking off masks. You saw some faces, I mean, near 100% mask compliance at Mexico city, including people walking their dogs alone, riding their bikes alone, working out in the park alone. It was just too much. And, uh, even though Mexico didn't have any vaccine mandates from a governmental level, um, you know, what we were finding is a lot of companies were having them anyways, because especially with a lot of interna international companies and the COVID hysteria really did take over Mexico bars, restaurants. So many of them instituted vaccine mandates for their employees. Obviously this is not all over the country, but in, in Mexico city, it happened a lot in the tourist areas of where even in Playa del Carmen, I believe that may have been the case at some point by the time we got there, it really wasn't. But, um, because we had decided to eventually come to Florida, but didn't know how long we'd be in Mexico. We decided on Playa del Carmen. It's only about an hour South of Cancun, which is about an hour, hour and a half flight from Florida where I had already in the meantime, in the background, sort of been laying the groundwork uh, with some professional contacts, seeing what kind of work I could drum up in the area, um, which I was able to do. And I did start going back and forth. There was a few months that were a little tumultuous where I was spending you know, half my time at an Airbnb in, in Florida, half my time, time back uh, in Mexico. And while we just really had no idea how long it was going to take to get the immigration paperwork uh, for my stepson. Uh, but eventually, uh, after we uh, you know, threw a lot of, uh, a lot of, honestly, a lot of prayer 
prayer and a lot of just hoping because at some point you've submitted everything you can send and you've just kind of done what you can do and it's in, it's in fate's hands or whatever it is you believe. Uh, but eventually we did get it. Um, and then we had our appointment. You had to go all the way to Ciudad Juarez, um, which uh, I had not, even a few weeks before I had driven across, uh, driven through on the other side, not driven through, driven, driven by uh, when I drove through the Southern U.S. driving my car from California um, to Florida. I driven through El Paso and, and saw the signs for Ciudad Juarez and just thinking, well, I guess that's where we're going to have to go eventually because you do have to go there um, to finish your immigration process. If you are in Mexico, you have to finish it at the embassy or the consulate in Ciudad Juarez, uh, which is not known as a safe place or a particularly good place. And pretty much everyone stays right in this two block area in all these hotels um, around the embassy. But we went to Ciudad Juarez, had all our paperwork, thought we did. And it was honestly a huge emotional setback because we did not get the visa in Ciudad Juarez. Um, actually, and this was confusing to us because on previously with my wife's immigration, when I didn't, I know I never do my taxes by April 15th. I usually get an extension. Um, and uh, so we did that again this year. We had done that the previous years. It was never a problem. You had just shown your previous, you know, you had shown that you had gotten an extension and shown your previous year's taxes because you also have to show financial support. Um, but they weren't happy with that. They wanted to see the most recent year's taxes. And so that was very frustrating. But we basically got this blue slip. And at the end of the day, all we had to do was go get that those taxes and resubmit them and then hold our breaths. We sent his passport in, which is always a frightening thing. You have to mail the passport and hope and not and just wait for it to come back with a visa in it. Um, but we did do that. We got we filed the taxes anyway just to get this thing done and kind of sat there and really still having no idea how long it would take. But um, within a couple weeks, we got it back, had the visa. And as soon as we did that, we pulled the trigger. And I just booked our flights, booked an Airbnb in the Tampa area where we knew we were going to stay for a number of reasons, uh, both through just our, our investigation of the area and um, some contacts that we both kind of had developing. And uh, we just picked up and left about two suitcases each and uh, anything else that couldn't fit in there was left behind, you know, uh, just as I had also done uh, when leaving LA nine months earlier. So uh, Gary Collins style, simplifying the life. I basically did that twice in nine months. I got rid of most of my stuff in LA. We moved to Mexico. We got rid of a bunch of my wife's stuff in Mexico. Then we moved to Playa del Carmen. And then when we left there, we again got rid of a bunch of stuff. So we really literally had our entire lives, uh, the three of us narrowed down to six suitcases and three carry-on bags and a few things that were in the trunk of my car. Um, but I, I'm happy to say this week we did sign a year lease on a house in the area. And uh, for the first time in over a year, we're actually going to be in the same place uh, for at least a year while we kind of sort some things out, get ourselves settled in the community uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, um, certainly the politics of Florida did, did play a huge part. It wasn't the original reason why, because at the time the vaccines, when we first thought of it, the vaccine thing wasn't even out yet. Um, but, you know, Florida had lifted their the lockdowns extremely early after about three weeks and stayed that way. And um, yeah. I'm not going to get into a whole thing about Ron DeSantis, but let's just say I like a lot of what he's doing. And uh, I do feel better at least being in a place where, at least for the short term, now I have no illusions here. I think Florida could easily go woke at some point too. But in the short term, there's something like 6,000 people a day moving to Florida. And I'm pretty sure most of them are, if they're not doing it for the same reasons, they're doing it for for reason somewhere along these lines. And I got to think if there's any hope of developing more of a freedom culture, obviously there's the free state project. I spoke to uh, Jeremy Kaufman just a few weeks ago. I'm a fan of what they're doing, but let's be, face it. I am a hot weather boy. I'm a hot weather guy. Um, I, I grew up in the cold and I put in my time in Buffalo, New York, in Connecticut. I put in my time. I don't have to be cold anymore. I'm an adult and I can make that decision. So um, all that considered, Florida did really seem like the the, the right place for us. And uh, as I record this, we're about four days away from moving into uh, a new house here. And uh, and this is 
I think this Airbnb is the seventh place I have lived in the last year. That is not a joke. Uh, we've been in my place in LA, her apartment in Mexico City, a second place we moved to in Mexico City, our first place in Playa, our second place in Playa, uh, this place. And then yes, our house will be, this. That'll, be that'll be seven places I've lived in a year. And um, it's been exhausting, but we got through it. And um, I hope it's somewhat of a lesson to you that if you, and look, I'm not going to say this was easy. You know, a lot of it has been stressful. A lot of times I was sweating the bills because I did go from a more comfortable situation of a six figure job. Um, even though I was in an expensive place to not really knowing where my, all my income is coming from and having to scrap that together and having to dip into savings when I didn't want to, and having to, you know, sell certain things I didn't want to sell, but I did it because I did it to provide a better life for my family, to give us better opportunities and to not have to cave to a mandate and not to live in a place where my friends were going to think it was no big deal if an employer wanted to jab me. That's the place I lived in Los Angeles. I'm not, obviously not all my friends, but enough of them that I just didn't feel like this was a safe place for us, let alone um, the, the cost of living compared to here. I mean, the house that we have for here is basically the same same as I paid for a tiny little shithole in Los Angeles. And we have a, 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 a much, much larger place right now, let's just say. Um, so there were just so many reasons to, to give this a shot. And uh, it, there was never an easy decision to be made along the way. Um, but the fact is, because I did, because I didn't roll up the sleeve, I guess, uh, even though there were many other factors, that was the catalyst at the end of the day. We are now in a much better place than if none of the stuff ever, ever came up. So I'm grateful for all of it. And um, I hope to be somewhat of an example to people that if you find yourself in a tough situation, but and you did, you, you know, you shouldn't go along with something that, yeah, maybe you don't have it all figured out, um, but you know that it's not right to go along with it. And you know that maybe you and your family deserve something better. And if you don't have the path laid out, that's okay. Um, you can still move yourself in the right direction and orient yourself in the right way. And it took, you know, almost two years from the, the, the first impetus of this idea to actually get it all done immigration through, through several countries that we're dealing with here. And, um, now we're finally at a, I'm not gonna say an end point. It's really a beginning point. It's a new beginning point. Uh, it's one I'm very excited about and, uh, I can't wait. Uh, I've teased it a little bit last week and I'm going to tease it again for now, but uh, expect an announcement in the next few weeks that will indicate a little bit of a change, uh, for myself as well, a change that will certainly affect people that have been listening to this podcast for a long time. And that's all I'm going to say for now, because I'm just enjoying the high level teaser behind it. Um, so we're going to leave that there, but continue to stay tuned each and every Monday right here where you'll hear me and others do all of the roaring until next time, my friends live long and live free and live free and live free and live free and live free. And live free.